Eric, can you tell us about the first screenplay you sold, what was happening in your life at that moment in time, and how many had you written previously? Wow, that takes me back. Um, I, I was still at UCLA as a grad student, and I was in, work, in my first year working on my PhD. I mean, I always knew I wanted to teach at the college level sometimes, so I wanted to get those required degrees in early. <laughs> and I just loved college, and I wouldn't let anybody tear me out of there. So I was still working on the PhD, but there was another student there, a doctoral student there, whose stepfather was a director. And he asked, do you have anything? Do you have any stories? And I was working on something. I, was, I had a novella I was working on at the time. It was kind of, a, for the time, kind of an uppity uh, romantic comedy. Um, so I gave it to da David E. Miller was the director, if anybody wants to look that one up in film history. He was a great studio, a mainstream studio director and did some really good work. Um, but David really liked it and he wanted to option it and work on it with me. And I said, well, that sounds pretty good. And I was, what, 20, 23, 24. I think I was 24 at the time. And that's, what, that's why I never went back for the second year and, and beyond. And I never did my dissertation for the, for the doctoral degree because I was bought out of there and paid to write a screenplay. And I was 24 and maybe a little more cocky than I should have been. I figured I got this knocked, you know. I'm, 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 I'm off and running. And, well, the first life lesson, it was to be another eight years before I got my next assignment, my second assignment. But I was doing PhD in theater, so I had been writing stage plays for a number of years. But that's what it was. It was called The Menopause of Henrietta Luck. And it was, uh, it was a romantic comedy. What sparked the idea for the uh, novella? Good question. Where do these things <laughs> come the 24 from? Year old you know? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I could tell you. It was, <clears throat> it was a woman, a rather reserved woman in her late 30s was, was the, the main character, the heroine. And she had a father who was crotchety and uppity and mentally not quite all there. And that just kind of came, I think, from family history. We have a lot of eccentrics in our family. <laughs> so, you know, I was working the old uh, your own family sort of material. So then what did your own family think of you leaving this PhD program, right, at UCLA to quote unquote go to Hollywood? I mean, you're still in LA, but you're, you're crossing the line into town, another part of town, and, and then become an adult and not a perpetual student. Mm -hmm. That was fine. It was fine. You know, I, I was, I'm a very lucky person when it comes to, pre to parents, really, truly. I mean, we were, what would you call it, middle class, lower middle class, basically, as a family. But I had two loving, caring, wonderful people for, for parents. And uh, I learned to value that more and more as life goes on. Truly, truly, that was a blessing. And uh, 
my dad was the scientist and my mom was uh, not an artist in and of herself, but she's the one who understood it. You know, go do what you're good at. So, uh, no, no, they understood. And the plan was always that I would go back. Well, one thing led to another and I never did go back to the PhD program. So they, you had their blessing, you, you sell this script, mm -hmm. is that right? Yes. Is it made? No, no. It's not made, <laughs> okay. And what are you doing in that eight years? What's your progression of mood, output during that eight years? Well, after that, uh, basically up to that point, I had never even been in a room with a motion picture camera in the same room. So uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time, Diane, uh, she had uh, applied and gotten into the American Film Institute and I said, oh, that sounds pretty good and that's better than going out into the world and going to work. So I applied to and we both got into the American Film Institute and we both already had a Master of Fine Arts terminal degree f uh, in theater from UCLA and then we went into the Master of Fine Arts program at the AFI. Myself as a screenwriter and Diane as a director. She's a wonderful director. And uh, so we got to hide out for another three years. You know. I see. But uh, after that, then I focused on writing. And so did you think that it would just be a matter of a, a few years until you'd churn out the next script and sell it again and you could sort of capture lightning in a bottle again? Or no? You I wasn't that optimistic. Optimistic, <laughs> yes. You have to be to a certain extent, but I'm also a realist. I just knew I had to do it. And it was another, speaking of luck, Diane was another major, major part of my luck because this lady took a chance, you know, that very, very few young, beautiful women, I think, would be willing to take on a guy from nowhere who said he was going to be a writer, fat chance, right? But she, <laughs> you know, put all her marbles on that, and she did. And I just, it was an amazing journey, and that she took that chance was something. And uh, I just kept working, and I started to get work. Uh, you, kick, you know, If you're a writer in any form, in any genre, if you're a writer, you're gonna get kicked in the teeth. I mean, that's, that, goes with, that goes with the territory. It's just that's the way it happens. So you gotta get used to certain things. You have to find that self, that peace within yourself and toughen your skin, get alligator hide because it's coming and it is gonna come. Uh, and then you just try every, the best way possible that you know how to do to uh, learn from it all, learn from it all. And, uh, I, w I was not an outgoing, I was a pretty shy kid, basically, is what it comes down to. I was not a tremendously outgoing person at that time. I didn't, hadn't mastered, mastered that skill yet. Uh, uh, but I felt I had a plan. I knew I couldn't do it by bashing on, bashing on doors, kicking doors down, pounding on tables, like yeah, to exaggerate, to make a point. I wasn't one of those people. But what I could do is make myself inevitable by continuing to crank out original material. And that is exactly what happened. I just kept writing. And I just kept rewriting and rewriting until they were pretty darn good. So 
when opportunities came, as eventually they did, I was ready. I had scripts, different genres, you know, what do you want? What do you want to see? Uh, I end, ultimately, I ended up with a top, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to bandy names about it at this point, but a top agent, literary agent in Hollywood, which kind of changed everything and, you know, made other things possible. And it was just because I had a drawer full of scripts. Um, but I would, I would like to say this uh, before we move on. <clears throat> I've written 17 feature screenplays uh, uh, for remuneration, you know, uh, uh, on assignment, shall we say. Um, of those 17, six got made. Of those six, I get screen credit on five. Of the five, I get shared screen credit on three and sole screen credit on two. And the reason I like to run that down for people is that is a pretty typical career, career arc for a working screenwriter. It's not what a lot of people coming into the field think it's going to be. Um, no, basically you end up making your living and it can be at times a very good living off of stuff that is never going to get made. Because whether it's made or not, those are financial decisions. Those are business decisions. And your original material you crank out uh, can be very, very good and be a good work sample. But I have a number of scripts that were never made, never, never uh, optioned, yes, but never made because they were wrong in their timing for the business at that, at that moment. So. Uh, that's truly, I think, kind of a, a glimpse of the true nature of this business. Um, I don't think it's changed too much since then. Um, people need to know that who are genuinely interested in, in, in fantasize or see the possibility of them becoming screenwriters. They need to buckle down for the long haul because that's what it is. And then the notoriety, you said that even though these were your works, you, you know, these were your scripts, but your name was either taken out or, and, and knowing that that's part of, you know, that, that you're not going to be blasted all over the trades. Yeah. And, and being okay with that. Yeah, that's, that's a part of the life. Um, yes. Uh, as a working screenwriter, this is, this is the thing. People who want to pursue this and I definitely understand it because it, I got the bug early and I want, I mean, I knew I was a writer in the fourth grade. And I say, you know, it didn't, I didn't choose it, it, choos, it chose me. And uh, okay, so that fate question is decided and we move forward and see where it takes you. But every writer who does not come from money, who does not come from great resources, uh, as most of us do not, there are two tracks to your life. And the, and the first is doing everything you can with who you are and your personality toward um, uh, fulfilling the, the desire, the, the creative need to do these things and write these scripts. And maybe some of them will get made. And that's a separate discussion, maybe. But also the second track being you have to find a way. You have to build for yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you an ongoing source of life sustenance separate from your creative career. You have to build that, I think, build that into your plan from the beginning 
because even when you do get start getting hunks of money, it comes in hunks, and at times it can be wonderful. It can be very big hunks. But when that happens, you have to really know how to, how to turn that money into income, in indefinite income. I mean, I have so many friends. Of course, it's so hard, and you struggle, and all of a sudden you're making the big bucks, and, and your name is in Variety for a few times and all that. And so they run and say, you know, I've worked so hard. I really deserve this. And they go up and buy the big house on the hill, which is certainly understandable. And five or six years later, you know, they're selling it. They're desperate and selling it, and they lose it because every year is not like that. It doesn't always rain gold coins in this business. It's going to be very sporadic. Take what you make, turn it into income. Uh, and that's what I did, what we did. Uh, uh, I advise income real estate. but. Uh, something so that you can have a life separate and and assured. I mean, it depends. I mean, Diane and I, we wanted kids. We had, I mean, when we had kids, pretty, pretty soon, pretty early on, and uh, the responsibilities mount, you know, and you got to do both. You got to do both, and it can be done that way. Eric, you are director of a top university Master's of Fine Arts screenwriting program. Can we talk about how did you become qualified for the position? Uh, what's your background? What, what are your daily activities? Um, well, as, as we were talking about earlier, I had a background, rather extensive background, in surviving at least, surviving for 23 years as a screenwriter uh, and occasionally TV writer as well. And uh, so they came to me with this offer of the possibility of tenure track teaching screenwriting. I mean, this was 18 years ago. So this was at a time when screenwriting at the university level was becoming more and more in demand, more and more important. All the major universities, you know, one by one, were creating these departments and these courses, specifically in grad programs for the MFA, which is the terminal degree, which you need to teach it and so forth. Um, and I suffered over the decision because I was, you know, making a living uh, and so forth. But I decided to go ahead and, uh, because I'd always wanted to go back to academe and I loved it and I loved the, the, ad this, the atmosphere of it and the working with people. A writer spends 90% of their working life, you understand, in a room alone. It's not always good for the head and the emotional structure within, but uh, that's just, you know, part of the job. So you got to find other ways of getting out of there, and this seemed like a good one. And in the beginning, I thought I'd made a horrible mistake because it's a bureaucracy. It is, you know, it's something that I was not familiar with in terms of participating in and all that. But uh, as time went on very quickly, I met wonderful people in the faculty. Um, and the tenure track, the tenure track climb to full professor is not an easy one. I don't know. People realize that stuff. People throw, you know, they say I'm professor of this and that. And there are very few of those around. It is a it is a process that can test and try one's endurance endurance and and, and other abilities, intellectual 
capabilities and all this other stuff. But one of the main reasons I did it was because I wanted to write a book about screenwriting and I knew if I took the professorship, I would have to because that would be part of the package deal in order to get to full professor, right? So, but what I found was what I didn't expect, which was a career that is in many, many ways so much more fulfilling than being a screenwriter or screenwriter alone. Um, and we started working together, I mean, not just me, but there are a number of very good people in this department that wanted this MFA in screenwriting program to, to be born and to flourish, and we worked on it. And over the years, it grew and into something that we're all, well, yes, I'll admit it, we're proud of it. Uh, just in the last year and a half, by the way, relative to the program, again, forgive me for this, but uh, let's see, it was, it was first uh, Hollywood Reporter included us as one of the top 25 film schools in America. Wow. And, and then shortly after that, Daily Variety put us in the top 40 film schools in the world. Wow. And it was a lot of work, but we were really pleased with the result, how far we've come. So it was a chance at a total second career and a very creative one in its own way and, and fulfilling, fulfilling and rewarding. So within those 18 years, how have you seen the way students approach screenwriting or their view of it change? And I know we're in Los Angeles, so <laughs> it's totally skewed. I'm sure it's the same in New York, but mm. do you think, first of all, in other parts of the country, uh, this would be as successful, this program? I don't. I don't know, and I'm, uh, I don't know, but my guess is, my best guess is that I, it depends on the people running the department and the, and the program and how often they can get their grad students out to L.A., but I don't know. I would guess it, it would be harder to be successful out beyond yeah, a certain radius beyond Los Angeles because this is it. This is the movie, TV making center of the universe, so to speak, is right here. And one of the things we can do is the people we bring in to teach, I mean, me, for instance, but even the part-timers and the lecturers and so forth, these are working people in the industry on a regular basis. They know, they know the truth. And uh, when you find one of those who is also a really good teacher, and that's, interestingly, that's kind of like two separate skills, but when you get that combo, you've got a really great, great faculty. And, uh, you know, you can, you can, oh, and also in, in LA, what's re we require this, we, I don't know, if if how many MFA programs in screenwriting have this. I, I know a number of them do, but I don't know if it's limited or not. We have uh, an internship program that is required in the last semester. So we send our people out to, we work, we have, we have a great relationship with a great number of, of production companies and development companies of material where our grads in screenwriting go out and intern and it connects them with the business. And this is important and it helps make it a stronger program. It really does. And a lot of our people, you know, one of the things you can possibly learn when you come to an MFA uh, screenwriting program may be that 
long-term as a career, screenwriting or television writing alone for you may not be the right way to go for any individual. But there is so much to be learned in the program, so many tools to be acquired and mastered when they go out in their internships and meet the people doing this and producing this and the uh, creative directors of companies and stuff like that. One of the first things that happens when anybody gets hired, I mean, on any level in, in Hollywood, it's an agency, it's a, it's a production company, usually in the first week or two, somebody drops by, you're juggling the coffee or whatever it is your, your task is, and they drop a script in front of you and they say, you know, I read this over the weekend. Well, yeah, tell me what you think of it on Monday. And it's all very casual and low-key, but the truth is this is one of the most important moments of your professional life because how you respond to reading that script and how you speak of it afterwards will tell them a great deal about how useful or not you will be to a company going forward that is in the creative business. And our people do that very, very well. And so a number of, I mean, they, they can take a script. By the time they finish here, we've, we've beaten it into them and they can take a screenplay and they'll tell you exactly what's right with it, what's wrong with it, and precisely how to fix it. You know, its strengths, its weaknesses, what it needs to be changed. And, uh, and they do that well out there in their internships and now we have a half a dozen or so of our people climbing the, the kind of the more business end, creative business end of the ladder and doing very, very well out there. Are you able to talk about some of the scripts that you go through as examples for part of the curriculum? Are you some certain movies that you tend to focus on or directors? Sure, sure. <clears throat> I use I use a lot of scripts because I'm encouraging people to read. <clears throat> I'm forcing them to read, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> That's hard these days, by the way. I, I must say, even though I'm Generation X, I, I'm seeing myself being, you know, torn away from reading more and more. How is that in this digital age where, you know, 140 characters is considered reading? Mm. Yes, it's problematic. It's very problematic. But you're getting people used to the idea, which is great. Yes, and I, with, with a greater sense of personal urgency also, if I may throw a statistic at you, in 1946, just after World War II, uh, at a time when only about 10% of the population, nation's population, went to college or could afford to go to college. The GI Bill hadn't kicked in yet, you know, and started to change that. But in 1946, the, America, the general American population had a reading vocabulary of 25,000 words. That's not recognition that is used in, you know, in everyday conversation. A reading vocabulary, 25,000 words. By 1990, the average American had a reading vocab, uh, uh, speaking, excuse me, speaking vocabulary of 10,000 words. And since then, I am sure it has declined precipitously since then. That is what happened. You read less, you just see images, you live through images. You, you know, you use emojis to express emotion and you don't need words, you don't have the subtlety of words or the variety of a vocabulary. And it limits, I believe, truly limits how people th can think, even intelligent people, how completely they can think. 
And that's why reading actual words on actual paper is incredibly important for young writers. Uh, and so you're encouraging them to, to read uh, novels as well, or mostly just in the screenplay format? Well, I would, I would hope. I would hope novels as well. I mean, that's one of the things I say. Look, guys, if you were setting out to become a novelist, couldn't we take it for granted that in your life you had read thousands, perhaps multiple thousands of novels before you actually sit down to write one? What should the difference be if you say you want to be a screenwriter? Can't we assume that you have written hundreds upon written, read hundreds of hundred, upon hundreds of, uh, of, of screenplays? It seems to me we can. And then we do the hand thing. You know, how many of you have read five screenplays? How many at 10? It tapers off at about 20, 25. You know, there's no more hands going up. And then I lay out the task. You must be reading constantly. You, you cannot write what you do not read. You just cannot. And so that's one of the things, one of the hurdles we have to face and, and draw them into. I mean, they see it. There's, these are smart people and they recognize it. Bless their hearts. But that's one of the avenues where we have to travel. Now, um, yes, I would encourage them also to be writing novels. I mean, to be reading novels because I think ultimately they should also be writing novels. But that's a, a separate discussion. But uh, to to they don't have enough time. They're reading all the other stuff for here and books about screenwriting and filmmaking and, uh, and then, of course, all the, uh, all the screenplays. Aaron Brockovich is one of my favorites. Susanna Grant's screenplay for Aaron Brockovich. I think that's one of the better screenplays I've ever read. Uh, certainly in there, you know, with the group. Uh, there's so much to be learned in that screenplay. We were recently in one of the classes. They had done that, and we spent an evening talking about it the things that Susanna Grant does to make it work, to give it a style, a, a narrative style, as well as just exposition as, as it goes forward, stuff like that, how she creates characters that live, and each one with their own voice. There's a lot to learn there, a lot. But of course, it's not the only one. We have a bunch of scripts, yeah. But Aaron Brockovich is one of your favorites. Do you think it's because there's also, she was a real person. It's, it's, there, it, it's, she's still around. She's still doing her thing and That's right. very active. That's on, right. See her on Twitter and yeah. Do you think that that helps because it's a, it's a real person that they're basing this story off of versus a person? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most definitely in terms of, you know, that single issue of, of character. Absolutely. The reason they made the movie was because of the character and what the character did. But, uh, Susanna Grant, as a screenwriter, was in a difficult position there because I'm, I'm guessing, I do not know for certain, but I am guessing that from the beginning when they got the rights to Aaron Brockovich's story, uh, 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 Ms. Brockovich had in there some sort of control over who the screenwriter was going to be. Frequently that's the way it's done. So she interviewed people and they kind of clicked with, she's clicked with Susanna Grant and Susanna Grant's probably spent a lot of time with her, getting to know her, hearing, hearing her speech patterns, hearing her use of vocabulary and, and emotional tempos and rhythms and stuff like that. And so, yes, I would say, absolutely, it, it was a powerful influence. But that's only where it began. 
You know, it's Susanna Grant who picked the scenes and the ordering of the scenes. It's Susanna Grant who drove the story forward, had her character, the main character, driving the story forward every step of the way. Um, what she did with that was masterful. And there's something else about that one, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, love, to burn, love to burn up film here, tape. Uh, there is a major problem in the third act. I mean, this is getting pretty esoteric, but there's, oh, no, a, there's a major problem in the third act of, uh, of Aaron Brockovich, which there is a point, a dramaturgical point that must happen, must happen in, in films that are going to connect with large audiences. Yeah. And because of the circumstances, this is a, Aaron Brockovich is a courtroom drama, really. It's about somebody suing somebody. So the big payoff moment, what's called the obligatory scene, would happen, would should happen in a courtroom. But Aaron Brockovich is not an attorney. So if it happened in a courtroom, the entire big moment would take place with Aaron Brockovich just sitting there silently watching. And Susanna Grant recognized this quite correctly so that this was a dramatic, big dramatic problem. So like a really good screenwriter does, she found a way around that, that gave it the emotional punch, kept the focus on Aaron, and gave it the, the, the sense of victory and emotion for the audience at the ending instead of the courtroom. We'd never go to the courtroom. Do you remember what Trying they did? To, yeah, I, I'm, I'm remembering certain scenes right now, definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. Toward the end, she was running around get, getting everybody to sign right. up for it because they had to have X percent, 90 percent or Driving something like that desert, of all yeah. the people in the town. In, had to, they had to sign this affidavit or something like that. And she comes back and there's these two uptown uppity lawyers. <laughs> and there's this funny scene where she basically lays out that she's saved the day. You know, she's found the, the smoking gun. She's got, got the evidence, and, and it's turned into a moment of emotional victory for the hero with a substitute adversary. It's not, I mean, they're not the real adversary. PG&E is the real adversary. Right. I know this is kind of a, a subtle thing, but it is a remarkable piece of screenwriting to know that and to write it in such a way that it works. Plus, she had been fighting that stereotypical uptown person throughout yes. her working with Albert Finney, the looks that she would get, whether it was yes. her fault for the way she was dressed and some of the comments, but she was fighting that same stereotype, so it was like a culmination of yep. that at that yep. moment. Yep. Yeah, and great. they are a brilliant writer's substitute for to provide the emotion that cannot, under these circumstances, because it's a courtroom drama and she's not a lawyer, but can provide the substitution of an emotional payoff for an audience. And it works. It works. How does Erin Brockovich grow? How is her character evolving and, and changing for the better in that film? Mm -hmm. to, trace, to trace character growth, you have to, uh, uh, the writer doing it, and anybody who wants to understand it, you know, when it works uh, uh, with other, you know, with other writers doing it well in other films, you have to go back to certain basic questions. And the one in Aaron Brockovich is, what does Aaron want? 
there is one thing, and that's what you have to you know, condense it down to. Well, she wants this, she wants happy kids, she wants money, she wants... What does Erin inside, what does she want and need? And you boil that down. That's question number one. This is good in general kind of stuff. When you're, when you're, when you're writing a character, a lead character, a heroine, or, or hero, right? You've got to know certain things about what makes them tick. I would offer that what Aaron, Brock, Aaron Brockovich wants is to be taken seriously. Everything she does, everything she says, everything she goes back to, it is about being taken seriously. And, but then she finds out as she goes along in her story, she's getting closer and closer to actually being taken seriously. It's costing her her family. She's losing her children and her children's connection to her because she doesn't have any time for them anymore. Remember her son, she, he, he's really getting kind of twisted out of shape and uh, you know, he's not happy with mom at all because she's not around anymore. So the hero's journey, uh, uh, emotionally, the inner journey, it, has to be, it always has to be hard. It always has to be difficult. And you have to be able to demonstrate it um, physically, visibly, to demonstrate it. And so you have to know what they want, and that has to come out, I mean, really want, their primary defining want as a human being, right? And you have to know their wound. Every character that works, and every character who has character growth, ultimately, has this deep inner wound. It usually takes place in the past before the film begins, but not always. Sometime, uh, in, uh, uh, in Finding Nemo, uh, Merlin, who is the hero of that movie, he, uh, the wound happens right at the beginning when he, he loses his wife and 999 out of his thousand eggs to this barracuda or whatever fish, nasty fish, uh, eats them all up and it's th this is his tragedy. But the wound then defines that character for the rest of the movie until they are able to move beyond it. The wound, the wound is, uh, when a person has a wound going that deep, even you know, in reality, let alone you know, <laughs> in fiction, they tend to insulate themselves and defend themselves by creating this shield between themselves and the world so nothing that horrible or that painful can ever happen to them again. That's usually when we meet them toward the beginning of the story. This person who is isolated, emotionally isolated, behind a shield. And uh, the journey toward character growth is them figuring out that they have to get away from the shield. They have to lay down the shield and face the potential hurt and pain in the world in order to connect with humanity and, and lead a full life, you know, to connect with Earth again, can people, and, uh, and really live a complete life rather than just be caged up and, you know, and be gone and, and never have connected with anybody else. And that is what has happened to Aaron. 
she is behind it. Remember, they ha you have this scene. This is still in Act One, I think it is, and uh, she's got the tiara and she's doing her speech because she was Miss somebody, Miss Wichita or something right, like that, right? right. At one some point, <laughs> and uh, and she said that I thought I was going to be somebody. I thought I was going to be able to do something, and then she found out that she was just treated like a dumb broad opening chain stores, department stores, and they didn't expect anything of her and they didn't want anything of her. They just wanted her to stand there and look pretty. And that was her wound. She, she didn't see that. I mean, she originally saw that as her opportunity to, to, to break free and you know be who she knew she could be, um, but uh, didn't work. So now, in her life, while she's desperately trying to put food on the table for her kids, she is also desperately seeking a way to get people to take her seriously. And that's a wonderful place to start character growth. It really is. And you see the other co-workers and the different people that she has to deal yeah. with. And probably one of the toughest environments in terms of being accepted in terms of she had lack, you know, no education and sort of was seen, right. again, as sort of a, a, a dumb whatever. And, and she's coming against probably the worst scrutiny and she feels it and she strikes back. And that's where we start to see yeah. an interesting smart mouth person emerge. And yes, exactly. <laughs> Do you think a lot of people related to her character? Oh, heck yes. That was an international smash, you know. Uh, uh, yes. <clears throat> That's what I tell the students too all the time. <clears throat> My approach to to screenwriting, to teaching screenwriting, <clears throat> is mainstream commercial Hollywood screenwriting. That's what I'm going for, and that's I give them the tools for that. And there are many, many tools uh, uh, necessary, really, that most of the people don't even realize exist when they first come into the program. But, but it sounds like her story arc was relatable to oh, trying heavens, to prove, yes. prove oh, heavens, oneself. Yes. Is okay. that is that not universal? Right. Isn't her, is her circumstance not universally relatable? Sure. To women uh, all over the world, and, and it men was a, too, and yeah. it was a hit, mm -hmm. and many many men, and it was a hit all over the world, and that. That's some of the students are are a bit cynical about my lack of cynicism about Hollywood and movies that make a great deal of money. But I, I just point out that what money means is this film touched untold millions of people where they live. It gave them a, some form of a rewarding emotional experience. They got what they came for. Uh, a storytelling here, a, a, an instance of storytelling, it worked. And that's what we need to learn how to do because that's a language, that's a language and a craft and a ritual that can be mastered. Have many of the students seen Aaron Brockovich? Uh, I, yes, I make mm -hmm. them. You may, okay, you make them, yeah. <laughs> but what most is, uh -huh. of them, and it's old enough movie, it was, you know, it was an sure. old enough movie now. Sure, it's yes. enough, yeah. And so people, let's say, that are under, 30, what's their reaction to the film versus over 30? 
Interesting, interesting. Because it um, seems like cynicism is, is in these days. Oh, it is. It, it's, it's a fact oh, it right is. now. It's, you know, that's, and, it's, and it's, affecting, <laughs> it's affecting the themes of contemporary movies and spent hundreds of millions of dollars making a movie whose theme is life sucks and then you die. Mm, this is a very disturbing time, yes, in Hollywood. It is in many, many ways. And that is, comes out of the cynicism of the young, and this is true. Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd have a hard time saying that. Uh, they all read it and see it, and they, they, they all speak well of it. Um, it was an interesting, I, just the other night when we were talking about this, uh, one of the students said uh, she really didn't like Aaron Brockovich, not the movie, the person. She said, I don't <laughs> like that character. She's an awful human being. And I said, well, you know, characters, he leads who work in movies, uh, they can't be perfect because we don't like perfect people. No, we want boring. to know and love and care about flawed people. But, and then you got to list, got to list the reasons we have been given that the storyteller gave us to allow us to identify with this hero, the Erin Brockovich, and like her anyway, even for her brashness. And, you know. and her outfits, too. And her outfits, you know, <laughs> well, taste, you know, no accounting for. Eric, we're in this age of everybody's trying to hack this, and how do we, how do, we do this faster? So most people probably would turn to education as another form of hacking. How do we get past a certain time frame of putting energy into something. Is formal education totally necessary when it comes to writing? Can't someone still be a brilliant screenwriter without having to be part of an MFA program or even get a bachelor's in writing? The answer is simple and the answer is absolutely yes. Of course they can. They can. But that for most of us is choosing a very difficult and lonely road. And uh, here is why. See, this, any art form, before anything can be art and appreciated as something that has reached to the level of art, it is a craft. First, art is created by craftspeople who have some inspiration at one moment in their lives or 50 moments in their lives when the craft that they do so well rises to the level of art. But you cannot cut to art without swimming through craft, without creating and understanding the craft of anything. Uh, Georgiana O'Keeffe, I don't know why, you know, she came to mind, yeah. but then, and Pablo Picasso, okay? Graphic artists who take it to the level of, of true and pure art. Both of them, in their early years, learned their craft. They learned perception. They learned color. Their, their you know, composition. There are things you have to learn, tools that these artists have. And when they are mastered, then they can take it into some very interesting and unexpected places. But you've still got the tools. Chess. Chess is a rather interesting game, and there are untold millions of possibilities, maybe infinite possibilities. There are six pieces in a, in, in a chess game. But how to use those six pieces and multiple combinations and so on create probably the most fascinating 
intricate and mind-twisting game ever invented. Uh, uh, there are tools in screenwriting. And I would take the position that if this is what somebody really wants, if this is what they're going for, if, this, if the, all their gifts lead them in this direction, then they need to get educated about the tools. You can do that on your own, but it, you know, but you'll need to read a lot of books and sometimes, I mean, there's a lot of great books on screenwriting out of there. You know, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great books and there are tons and tons of garbage books on screenwriting too. And if you haven't got, you know, some guidance, you may be wasting a lot of time on some of those books. But if you come to an MFA program, you are pursuing a couple of things, really. You know, what, you, what do you get for your money? You know, all that kind of stuff. Well, first of all, you're going towards a terminal degree, a graduate terminal degree that qualifies you to teach tenure track as a professor at the college or, uh, and or uh, university level. And that's a major certificate. That's a major thing to have. Uh, uh, like me, I had two of them stashed away in the closet somewhere. When the opportunity came up decades later, okay, I'm qualified, I'm prepared, you know, let's go. So that as a writer, it gives you another door to open, another avenue to pursue in life. You are less hindered. Remember I said you gotta have two, two pathways to be pursued at the same time? Your craft and art, yes, but at the same time, how to regularize an income? Well, you're, you're a big step toward the second path when you have an MFA, just the practicality of the degree. But on the other set, set of uh, uh, accomplishments, it's about the tools, the tools you will learn who, that never, you never knew existed. So many people who don't get a formal education in it or read, they still talk of screenwriting as something that falls from the sky I don't want that stuff, you know, I don't do plot, you know, I, I, I just read this someplace and it just made me shake my head. Somebody's, these comments that flow into things, I think it was, it was, it was, it was actually it was one of your clips and somebody, was, oh, somebody down there was saying, I hate plot, you know, <laughs> I want story. And that poor person obviously is not educated about these things because plot and story are the same bloody thing. They are, you, a story is plot, plot is story. Maybe we can get there in a minute or two. Uh, uh, but make those mistakes and that's just, that's just ignorance. You know, and you can get educated and you can learn the tools and how to use them. It is to be out there saying, I'm gonna create this beautiful, big, intricate thing and not know the pieces of it. It's like going to say, I'm going to create this big, beautiful house and I know absolutely nothing about cement, electrical cabling, uh, roofing shingles, uh, glass, or uh, you gotta know all these things before you can build a house. And I believe the same is true for really good screenwriting. Um, for instance, I'll throw out some, some of the silly stuff, but useful, useful stuff. Did you know, for instance, that there are only four viable goals in all of narrative screenwriting? And those four. goals are, yeah. <laughs> Win, stop, escape, or retrieve. So, okay, you've got an idea for a character, your hero or heroine, great, you've got an idea, and they have 
okay, now what is it they want? Well, they've got to have a goal to pursue, right? Well, it has to fall into the category of win, stop, escape, or retrieve. Now, these are big categories, and there are many versions of each one, many permutations of each one. So it's not like it's that cut and dried, but it will appear to a lot of people like it's, that's too cut and dried for me. But the point is this. There's only those four because those four share something in common. They all provide a visible, physical, three-dimensional goal for a motion picture that will result in a physical uh, uh, climax and obligatory scene. It precludes the use of internal goals. And that's one of the things people have to get over. An internal goal, that's great and it is separate from what drives the movie. You need a physical, visible goal. Each one of those four goals has a finish line, a visible finish line. And a goal like, well, they want to feel better about themselves. That doesn't work on film. It just doesn't work. Uh, and that there are only four emotions. <laughs> Mad, sad, glad, and scared. You haven't heard that one? No. <laughs> Again, there are, they, they are, you know, there's a lot of variations between man's mad, sad, uh, glad, and scared. There's many permutations and, and, and dimensions there. But the way they are useful is like this. If you are building, if you're outlining something, uh, a, a section, a particular section, here a goal sequence, or a particular scene, the thing is, the way you guarantee that it's going to have conflict and change in it, and change is one of the single most important, we could talk about that in a minute too, change is the power that makes screenplays either work or not work. You gotta quantify it, but it can be done wonderfully. That if the, if the hero, lead character, walks, stomps, jumps, falls into a scene, and they are either uh, mad, sad, glad, or scared, by the end of the scene, they have to be one of the others. If they're mad when they show up, they have to be scared when they walk away. Or if they're scared when they show up, they have to be glad when they walk away. Because that guarantees dramatic change within the scene. And it's a way of checking yourself. Because we read a whole lot of scenes which are just talk. And they're the same, everything is the same at the end as, as it was at the beginning. And that is not a viable scene for visual storytelling. Things like that. They, 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 do you know there are only 14 character categories no. in all of dramatic writing and all of narrative writing? You have to know the 14 categories and you have to know how they work and how they interrelate the puzzle pieces to create plot, how they advance, how they can advance a story. Um, I'm just curious. What? Sorry to interrupt, but what are the what are a few of the 14? Just for instance, uh. there, in other words. Let me qualify. There are 14 character, character categories that advance and serve story. Story is a central character, hero or heroine, who undertakes to do something, physically do something, in order to achieve a visible physical goal by the end kind of stuff. And in that pursuit, there are 14 other character categories who serve as either helpers or hinderers toward that hero. 
and they are, I mean, like, first of all, I mean, the main categories are, are, are hero and adversary. Ooh, adversary is much unsung and under underappreciated. The adversary is critical, and, 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 and the point, I mean, without, without conflict, you don't have a story. There is no story without conflict. That's just it, you know. So that adversary is key to the creating of conflict, and so it, it puts a lot of weight on who the adversary is. So you got hero, adversary, then there is a mentor, a very wide and delicious category, uh, uh, and uh, you know goes uh, uh, back to Joe Campbell and and the yeah. assessment of the of, of the mythological approach stuff. That there's some of those characters. I mean, he called the adversary uh, the shapeshifter. Uh, that's some more specific usage. Yes, it's adversary. Shapeshifter is, is somebody who appears one thing on the outside and becomes something else. That is one kind of adversary, but not the only kind. So, And then there's mentor. There's the love interest character. This is interesting, the love interest character. I really go into this in detail for folks. For some, I mean, the love interest character brings depth and humanity and, and, and helps, augments, and eases character growth forward for the central character. And it is the least used character category of all the grad students who pass through here. Interesting. Yeah, it really is. And I, I, it, I, I think it's the character, it gets too close to home. Maybe their experience you know, in these things, emotional, sensual experience is highly limited or something what it is, something about it, but that is a key character in stories that work and you have a, a romance subplot, that love interest character. Whoa, when it's done well, it's one of the most powerful things you can add to a story. And then there are helper follower allies and, and a sidekick. A sidekick is another category. Very specific function is played by the sidekick. Um, and, and others. There is the uh, adversary agent. See, there is one adversary. Adversary can only be one, one person, human being, or a personified thing, a monster that behaves like a human being and thinks like a human being, but, but one thing, one human being. But they can also have all kinds of adversary agents running around doing the bidding of the adversary. So in, in let's say Aaron Brockovich, they're fighting this like toxic tort or whatever, mm -hmm. and and so the, the the workers of the plant, or, or of the you know, are, are sort of the adversary agent because they're maybe not the ones totally calling the shots, but they're working for the people that are calling the shots. Yes. Okay. Except for the ones that turn to the good side, you know, <laughs> who jump over to the good people, and and then there's a group of characters called gate guardians. And that's, I would put those people in the gate ca guardian category. Gate guardian is a character who, this is, this is from uh, Campbell and, and the mythological structure too. Gate guardian is a character who when first met by the hero, when first confronted by the hero, stops them, says, no, you cannot enter here. But once the hero finds a way to outsmart that gate guardian. It's never brute force. It's but when they outsmart them and find a way to get around them and continue their journey, after that, the gate guardian becomes an ally. Interesting. Okay. At first opposes and then assists. And a, and a few more. There's a few more in there too. 
But see, but the point is, all of these characters, there's only 14 that, that help you create a plot, that help move a story forward. And any other character that a particular writer wants to plot, you know, I really like this character. You know, they're kind of interesting and peppy and zippy and they talk funny and I like it. If they do not serve the story, if they do not help drive the plot forward, get rid of them, ax them, cut them, lose them, because they have to serve a function. Eric, something you just said to us off camera was that when you do see students again sometimes out in the, uh, the public arena that they'll say, you know, I always remember you encouraged me to write badly with pride <laughs> and how it worked for them. Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, every time I walk into uh, uh, the class, the first evening, all our classes are evening, evening classes, and in the new class, the first year people there are for the first semester, and I walk in, and they're chattering away and trying to get to know each other and so forth, but they haven't you know, really had any, anything to do with me yet, and I walk in. It was always weird and creepy because as soon as I walk in, deathly silence <laughs> falls. Everybody's waiting, you know. So I look very austere and serious, and I walk to the whiteboard, and I write on the whiteboard in very, very large letters, write badly with pride. And then they laugh. You know, everybody, everybody laughs, and it cuts the ice, and you know, it, it works that way. And I turn around, and I smile, and I say, yes, but I'm not kidding. For it is a critical importance for writers to permanently give themselves permission to write badly. If, um, uh, writer's block is all about expecting and demanding of oneself perfection. Anything, any word, any sentence, it's got to be great. It's got to be great. No, that way lies writerly death. You do that, you'll end up freezing so solid, you'll never write again. It is exactly the opposite. Writing is a craft. It's a craft, and how, how, do, you, how do you participate in a craft? It's a craft that it's, that's exercised with words. And it is like um, in, in, I don't know, statuary or something. You start out with a big gooey pile of wet clay, and you start to mush it. You get your hands dirty, you know. You get down in the mud and you mush it and squish it, and then you start making choices about as you shape it, the, the pieces you're not going to need, and so forth, and, and and you go from there. But you start out with mess. That's what we do as writers. We start with mess, and then we make choices. First hundreds of choices, and then thousands of choices, and before we're done, tens of thousands of cho individual choices have been made. But you cannot make choices and you cannot see what or choose what direction you want your story to go in or how you want it to develop unless you have a pile of words on the page. So we have exercises sometimes. Just let's try it. Let's write as badly as we know how. And it's funny. You read them aloud. Everybody gets a laugh. It's kind of stuff. And what they find out is even when they are trying to write badly, because that's what we're doing, it's this little exercise, it still comes out funny. It's still, it's, it's not bad, in other words. They're, they're, they're funny, they're cute, they're weird, they're quippy. But even writing badly, they're not really writing that badly at all. If you write badly 
for instance. I'm trying to think of a good example. How about when I, when I wrote my book, when I had trimmed it down nice and tight, and I thought I really had it ready to go, I had 100, 120, 130,000 words in the manuscript. And I called them up and said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. I've done my cutting and I've done my, you know, here it is, 130,000 words. And he laughed, publisher laughed and said, no, no, Eric, we don't publish anything over 70,000 words. And it was like this bolt of horror that hit me. I said, wait a minute, are you actually telling me that I now have to cut my book in half? And he said, yeah, actually, I'm afraid I am. So for three or four days, I was just practically in a coma. Uh, it was, you know, any writer, you know, you're just, you're, you're appalled about what they make you to do to your babies. Uh, and then I got some help. Uh, I had somebody else, a dear, dear friend who was good with editing, take a look at it. And I seriously cut into it one more time for editing. I got it down to 82,000 words. Not quite their 70,000 but I cut it by 40, 45% of the book that I thought was absolutely necessary was gone. And the book was better for it. It was such a better book. It was clearer and it was cleaner and there were so many swamps removed from it. It was an interesting experience, but I had, did not realize, you know, you have to re-objectify I didn't realize how much work there was yet to be done. So writing is word choices and a process of re-objectification. That's, that's something critical too, which means writers never write alone, never. <laughs> um, but what, what we spend a lot of time alone in the writing process, but once we have something, then we have to, and this is important, this is important to, to new writers everywhere. You have to have a circle of people you tr whose, whose opinion of material you trust. It's one of the things that happens in our program. These people make friends for life because then they rely on each other's judgment because everybody knows everybody's opinion grows to become quite sophisticated about the material. And you can always call up one of your buddies and say, you want to do a script swap? You know, you read mine, I read yours. And what you get back frequently is not what you want to hear. We're all children. You know, we all want to say, oh, that is the greatest thing. Isn't that great? And, and that's never what you hear. So you're always eternally disappointed. So you hear objective, good criticism of what you've got. And I always tell them 48 hours. Don't do anything for 48 hours. Suffer. Fine. Stay in bed, whatever you need to do in response to what you've heard about your material. And then sit down and read it again, cover to cover. And it will be revealed to you through someone else's point of view what you really have. And all of a sudden it's time to start editing again and rewriting again. You will get it. And that is what has happened there is the cycle of subjective work to re-objectification. Because as the more you work on something over time, the more you are in it. You are drawn into it and it becomes within you and it is about you and you think you're doing something great. And then you take it out and you get a slap in the face or two 
you get, you clears your eyes, it clears your vision very, very well. You become re-objectified and you approach the material again with clean eyes for another go-round. And in my experience, if you <laughs> really want good material, and I'm assuming we all do, there's some who just want pats on the head and all kind of stuff, but if you really want the material to be good, you have to go through that cycle, subjectivity, re-objectification, subjectivity, re four or five, maybe six times. Then, then, each time, you know, it gets better and it gets a little better and it gets a little better. And you don't want to send that anything out. That's one of the biggest mistakes people make, is sending out material before it's finished. So if you're giving writers the permission to write badly, and, and you're doing these exercises, and that's one of the first things you write on the board, where, what permission are you giving them with the rewrites? And how open are they to rewriting? Uh, most of them get. <laughs> I mean, it's a cliche, but cliches are cliches because they're true that uh, uh, writing is rewriting and the only real way to teach writing is through editing that's why I spent a great deal of time on scripts and sample editing and scratching out stuff and throwing out scenes and telling people that you don't need this and this is good expand it here and all that kind of stuff because it's it's stuff that people truly need to hear that's what you get in a concentrated two-year, four-semester program. You get a heck of a lot of practice in, in a very short period of time, surrounded by very knowledgeable people who can guide you. Is there wear and tear on the nervous system? You bet. That's, that's kind of built in and guaranteed. But I, so far, I've never heard anybody say they regret it or anybody complain about it when they come out the other end. Um, but the other thing I write on the board a few weeks later, <laughs> yeah, uh, a few weeks later is there is no such thing as a bad screenplay. Only an unfinished one. And this is something I believe, truly believe, just as strongly as I believe about writing. You know, you got to write badly with pride, or you're never going to write anything. It's you know, it's, you have to allow yourself to do that. Uh, but I think. Any idea for a screenplay that is conflict-based, you know, this is the essential. It has to be conflict-based. But any idea for a screenplay that is conflict-based can be made to work. It can. And bad screenplays, if they contain some conflict, uh, they can all be made to work. It's just that they're sent out before they're finished. And when you send something out before it's really finished, you really only get one good shot at it. You know, you kind of burn it up. And uh, a lot of good ideas have gone to the idea cemetery because of, of making that move. Eric, in your book, The Story Solution, you claim that you've come up with a completely new paradigm for writing screenplays and novels. We're curious what that is. Mm. Uh, just a quick word on how it came about first, okay? Um, because I know it's pretty outrageous for a lot of people to be for my to be claiming that, you know, what what new under the sun can there possibly be and all. Um, for for a long time, for years before I became a professor here, while I was still a full time screenwriter, I was teaching 
at uh, UCLA Extension Writers Program, which is the largest such writing program in the world, and it's really great. Really good people teach there. And it was a way to get out of the house one night a week, you know, uh, out of my room, out of my office. And I was working with people who were really bright and really talented in various and sundry ways. They, you know, great characters, warm, three-dimensional, super dialogue that just kind of crackles and pops. But when they finally turned in their final project at the end of the, of the quarter, I guess, quarter system there, and I read their scripts, they just laid there. They were flat. The story wasn't happening or going anywhere. They would have three or four events and then try to stretch that out over, uh, you know, 110 pages or however the whole screenplay would be. And I gave them the books, we read the books, we went over it, you know, the structure over and over, the classic structure and, and, and Joseph Campbell and all of that. And yet when they sat down to write it, it just somehow didn't gel into a concept or command of screen story structure. And screenwriting is screen story structure more than it is anything else, right? So I went looking for, you know, as people do, uh, for patterns. There had to be a way to teach story construction, to not to the exclusion of all else, but focus only on finding an objective, objectified way to teach story construction. This is how you build a house board one, you know, that kind of stuff. And I looked at, oh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of films. And uh, yes, I began to see a pattern that I hadn't heard anybody talk about before or mentioned before or hadn't read about before. And then I kind of codified it, put it together as a paradigm and cleaned up the questions that it raised kind of stuff. And I kept looking and I be began more and more convinced. And then I did I set out to prove myself wrong. I mean, this I thought was a real important step. So I went back uh, searching through movies that had been hit movies that had, uh, you know, emotionally affected audiences all over the world uh, from pretty far back. I went far back as 1929. Buster Keaton, uh, The General. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was one of his last, if not his last, silent film. Um, it is, you know, something of, of a masterpiece of the silent era. Um, same thing, the same beats, the same moment, the same sequences, accomplishing the same stuff. So I codified it and began to teach it in, in, in the grad courses. People were rather cynical about such a thing uh, to begin with. But what I found out over a few years uh, of working on codifying it, simplifying it, you know, packaging it in a way that was understandable and useful as a tool, because that's what it is, it's just a tool, a darn good one, useful one too. Um, one by one, I won them all over and I proved it, yes, it's true. And it was like an interesting experience for all of us because, again, it, it, is, it's, it is about discovery. Now, just let me try this, okay, for just, just a few minutes. <laughs> um, 
One of the single most important aspects of screenwriting, any long-form narrative, even novel writing too, but just screenwriting in particular, is change. Things, thus everything in the story must keep changing as it flows. It, got, you know, it has to be different five, ten minutes from now than, than it, what the circumstances were previously ten minutes ago. It has to keep changing. And I, I ha came to believe there had to be a pattern of change. Um, and what I discovered was this. This gets a little numeric, you know, but stick with me for this uh, uh, because it's, it's important and I think enormously useful. Uh, three acts, okay, in a, in a screenplay you've got three acts. First act. In act one, I noticed, there are six sequences following one another that I called, I came to call hero goal sequences. Here's the definition for a hero goal sequence. A hero goal sequence is any two to seven page section of your screenplay in which and through which your hero or heroine pursues one short-term goal, physical short-term goal, only one, as one step toward achieving the overall story goal, right? Just, just that little piece of it. And at the end of that seven or so, you know, nothing is exact, you know, but seven or so pages, something happened or some discovery is made by this hero that I call fresh news. In other words, they turn up something that was unknown by them and by us, by the audience, about what they are doing that puts an end to that current single goal and offers up a new short-term physical single goal to be pursued in the next step. And that there are six of these hero goal sequences, six little individual pursuits of individual specific goals in the entirety of Act One and what we call there's many names for uh, this plot point one, there's the, 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 the first major turning point, uh, that kind of thing. I call it stunning surprise one. When stunning surprise one happens, which ends act one, officially and dramatically ends act one and kicks the hero forward, tumbling head over heel into act two, I call it stunning surprise one because that it should be, I believe, the emotional impact on both the hero and the audience. It needs to be emotional and it needs to be impactful, not abstract. That always happens in hero goal sequence six, always. And it continues. In the first half of the second act, there are six more hero goal sequences. And hero goal sequence number 12 always contains the midpoint sequence. That's a separate discussion. The midpoint is a, a fascinating part of movies that work and it's, it's, it's rich and layered with things that go on relative to character growth and relative to the plot being you know bumped up to the next level and all, but it always happens in number 12. In the second half of Act Two, there are six more, 
wonder of wonders. There are six more hero goal sequences, and hero goal sequence 18 always contains stunning surprise 2. Not 17, not 19, 18 in every movie that works for audiences. In, every, in other words, every hit movie that you can analyze because it's doing something right, this is the pattern. And then in Act 3, it's the only act where it can vary, where the numbers can vary. And in Act 3, you have between 2 and 5 hero goal sequences. I don't recommend 5. 5 is Good movies have been made with 5, like... Uh, uh, as good as it gets, which has to be, you know, one of my favorite romantic comedies kind of stuff. It has five hero goal sequences in, in, in rather extended act three. But the audience is getting antsy and it's time to get out by then. I, I, the standard, the average of movies that work is 21, 21 hero goal sequences. 18 for acts one and two, and then another three in act three. This is a way, I know it sounds kind of weird and mathematical at this point, but this is a way of quantifying change. It tells you in advance, this must happen in these few pages. There, it, it also goes beyond that. I mean, people were asking you, well, and what specifically happens in each one of these? Can you nail that down? In a general way, yeah, I do that in the book. You know, I say, well, these things usually happen in hero goal sequence number four, you know, that kind of stuff. But that's up for grabs and up for people to play with. But structurally, the bones are these 20 to 23 hero goal sequences laid out in this exact way, and they don't change. Why are there so many screenwriters opposed to structure? Are they hurting or helping themselves with this viewpoint? There are, there are a lot of people, always will be, uh, uh, and uh, some of them got Tom Stoppard himself, no less a writer than Tom, is uh, a really opposed to education, you know, kind of this education that is now offered in graduate schools for screenwriting and all that. But he can afford to be. You know, if you're born a genius, you know, okay, go for it. You can say anything you want and do anything and you write brilliantly and, and it's fine for them, it's natural. But for more, for most of us, uh, poor unfortunates down here below the peak of Olympus, yeah, we have to work a little harder at it. Um, I, think, I think it is a misconception of what there is to be learned. Um, they are, that many, many people have always done it a certain way and they sit and suffer and they think there's a muse that comes down. Uh, some people may be very, very uh, uh, intuitive about the story stuff. Uh, and for them, fine, yeah, yeah, it can work. But what I find is for the vast majority of people who want to be writers of screenplays or, or, or novels, that's not the case. There are tools, tools, tools. There are tools one needs to master. Um, before you are going to play uh, uh, inspirational and fantastic uh, um, orchestral music, for instance, you're, you're going to compose and play, don't you need to learn how to play the piano? Well, the, 
Yeah, that helps. Don't you need to know about uh, music and the theories of music and composition? It would help. You'd save yourself a lot of time and trouble if you do that. And I believe very much that it's the same with screenwriting. There's so much to learn. There really is. And the folks that tend to think that way and defend it, okay, that's the way they've always worked. I get that. You know, that's the way you want to work. Great, go that 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 do it. But I believe they are bringing into their own lives far more emotional suffering than than needs to be there. They, it's there's not the muse, folks. It, there is no muse. Um, it's up to you to come up with a decent idea that you can then pull out the correct tools to start shaping into something that will work and bring uh, uh, emotional sustenance and release for an audience. I think you had a blog post that I, I just skimmed the beginning of it and it's just that you, you I think you put you know we wake up the the, the birds are <laughs> chirping we feel great and we're inspired and we are gonna write and we get into like page yeah, 47 yeah. and we've hit a roadblock mm -hmm. so is this what we're talking about here sort of like how to find a way out of that roadblock because we know that okay if we're at page 47 we're at this point in the story mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are we at the midpoint, by the way, which is the interesting... Yeah, yeah, 40-ish, 47-ish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about the midpoint. Yes, I have always said no plan, no detailed plan, no Oscar. It's just not going to happen. If you're going to build a house, especially an intricate one, as one as intricate as, as a screenplay for a really good movie, uh, you have to have architectural renderings that take it down to the tiniest uh, dimension and detail and piece of equipment that is going to be used. You have to be organized about it. Disorganized people, as a rule, don't do all that well as, as writers, screenwriters. Again, this is not everybody. There are, in fact, geniuses, don't you just hate them, out there <laughs> who can do this stuff just instinctively without even thinking about it. But there's a handful of them living on planet Earth at any given time. Uh, and of course, they can't see it from our perspective, you know, that, gee, maybe you'd have to work at it. But yes, there is a lot of work and a lot to be known. and and. Isn't it better if you lay the pieces out, you know, you have a, a puzzle a puzzle board before you and you have all, you know, the dark pieces here and the light pieces here and you began to search and see and fit together something that is going to be a whole picture by the time you're through. That is a systematic way of doing something that is very difficult to do. And I would argue the tools, the tools, quantifying change, understanding the 14 character categories, knowing that there are 10 modes of plot coming out of um, how many heroes and, and what the hero's relationship is to other characters. There's only 10 of those. And you, once you have an idea, pick, your ten, you know, pick which of the 10. That's going to save you a lot of time and a lot of agony. And I would also throw this out. I would challenge, listen, I am, I am as open as anybody to learn here. I, I'm a lifelong learner myself. If, if someone thinks I'm wrong here 
or has an instance where if they can prove that I am wrong, I'd be very interested to hear it. I really would. If you think you've found a 15th category, for instance, if you've taken a look at the 14 and understand what is contained in the 14 categories, if you can come up with a brand new character category, I would love to be one of the first to hear about it, really. Um, usually, and I offer that to the students all the time, all the time. Usually when I hear back, when they bring things up rather enthusiastically, bless their hearts, it's usually from a misunderstanding of the 14 or it's a misunderstanding of, of what I'm saying relative to hero goal sequences and things like that. But uh, it's okay. It, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm happy about uh, hearing about ways in which I might be incorrect with this stuff. There is room for growth. In all of your classes growing up, was there one instructor that said something to you that really changed your way of thinking about writing? And do you remember that moment and what it was? That it, where it really popped, it made sense. Could be something very basic, could be something more elaborate. Hmm. Whether you were sitting in class, whether it was notes they gave you. One of the things about being at the MFA program in playwriting this was, so it was still fairly, fairly early on for me at UCLA, they, as all universities, they're very big on uh, employing, inviting even in as lecturers, you know, as part-time people, people known and greatly experienced in the industries. And they would come in and teach a course, for instance, a graduate course. Uh, there was a world-famous playwright in particular who, who came in and uh, did this course, a wonderful, wonderful man and a, a major talent. And I took the course and it wasn't, it wasn't the ultimate word of wisdom. That's not what I took away. What I took away from that course is every writer and every life is different and in a way sometimes that we do not even want to hear, it is truly up to us. Writers have in their core, hopefully the ability, we've, you know, we've been alone all our lives and our thoughts, to stand alone because hearing about other people's journeys in a personal way, these, these, these people just weren't, I mean this particular individual too is a, a wonderful soul. Uh, and, but basically what he did is he told old war stories for all semester long. And what we were writing, we wrote on our own. We, it was up to us. In the entire time, as a matter of fact, that I was at UCLA, nobody made any serious attempt to teach me, us, the toolkit or approach or structure of writing full-length plays. It was all touchy-feely and all up to you. And for a while there, I was a bit upset about that, a bit ticked about that. It, well, it did cost money and all that stuff. But yes, I learned. I learned what they didn't perhaps intend to teach, which is one person's journey is going to be different from yours. Now, this is kind of the opposite of what you were asking for, you know, this ultimate gem or jewel of wisdom. Uh, 
Uh, but I think it is a jewel of wisdom that uh, these are good, brilliant, accomplished artists uh, who are most sincere in their ability to share uh, uh, what, how they've done it and what they did, uh, be able to share that with these uh, up-and-coming writers before them in the grant program. But I came away feeling they didn't have a whole lot to share. And that said, okay, okay, I get that. We will make our own path. Do you think because they were so busy doing that they had a hard time articulating how they did it, or no? I don't know. I think m most of them were instinctive writers. <laughs> they didn't codify it. And that's why when I came to teach, later came to teach screenplay, I, I was you know, kind of obsessed with this has to be, you know, this is teachable. These are smart people. They can learn. If we can make this teachable, it can be taught. I mean, there are certain levels at which skill, talent, it helps to have talent. But we all know, I, I certainly think, I hope most people understand, that it's not necessarily the most talented writers who end up, you know, getting their scripts sold and, and, and even made. That's not how it works. They, ha they, they come up with ideas for stories. Hollywood buys stories, not particular scripts by particular writers. And they're stories that take people on a specific emotional journey, knowing that most likely they're going to come out feeling good at the end. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Less, less so with feeling good at the end now, today, than once upon a time. Have you seen life? Like we just saw that recently. Have you seen life yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. Oof. Speaking of a negative ending. Yeah, but there's still the gems, but I, I, I get it. I felt like after maybe 9-11, things changed, but mm. that's, that's a whole other mm -hmm. topic. But, oh, no, um, yeah, good point. Many new writers say that it's nearly impossible to get their scripts to people that actually have the power to buy them or greenlight them. That, that's their problem. That mm -hmm. they're that the access. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? And that's the reason they're not made. Sorry. Yeah. I would I would say they don't know how lucky they are, <laughs> as of today. Um, it depend. You have to get used to the system you have. I've, for instance, back in back in the day, back in my day, there was one way into Hollywood, TV, film one way, and that was through an agent's front door. And that agent's front door had layers and layers of guardians before it. And that was also frustrating, you know, in a similar way, but very, very frustrating to get in. But now what you have, uh, you have a more creative path, let me put it this way. Contests, screenwriting contests have now been around long enough to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, the good ones uh, uh, year after year have gotten stronger because, you know, more people believe in them and, and, and the less good ones, uh, although they're all sincere, I know they're all sincere, have uh, kind of fallen, fallen by the wayside. But the test is this, every time I hear that, I mean, yes, I, I have great sympathy for that. I understand that. I remember when I was coming up myself and what it felt like and it was infuriating and frustrating. But the number one reason why you are not making it is the material is not yet good enough because you if you're not especially if you're not reading you know reading the stuff that's out there you have no way of knowing how good 
good has to be in order to get noticed. And coming in, you have to be better than most of the people who are now making a living at it in order to get noticed, even. But the contests offer, you know, the, the, when I was talking about re-objectification, the contests offer a concrete way to do that. Work on it and work on it and work on it until you've got something you're ready to test. But now, pick your contests carefully. The first time you try it out, pick smaller contests, you know, more, more fringy. I mean, do your research. They should be decent, upstanding contests and, and so forth. Try it out. Try it out. Did you make the quarterfinals or were you swept away, you know, in, in, in the first pass-through? Okay, if that happens, you have learned something. It's not ready. And you keep working on it and you keep working on it. And finally, when, you know, you get to the mid-level ranks and let's say it gets, your, your script gets to the quarterfinals, okay, but it did not make the top 10 or top 15, fine, you've learned something more. Go back, take a vacation for a couple of weeks, try not to think about it, then read it again, make more notes, and go back to work on it. And it is a way to, that's the thing, see, what, what, what a lot of neophyte screenwriters, new screenwriters don't do or don't pursue, which is you have got to be, as a writer, as a craftsperson, you must be relentless in your goal of, of creating quality material. Um, for instance, I'll give you for instance, and maybe that'll sort of... Um, I'm working with uh, a young lady right now who was one of our grad students a few years, a couple, two, three years ago. Uh, she's been my assistant, class assistant, and stuff like that, so we know each other pretty well. She took her thesis screenplay from, I don't know, three years ago, and I read it, and I told her, you got a great idea here. You know, you really do. I believe in this idea. And we had conversations about, you know, there's no such thing as a bad screenplay, only an unfinished one and all that. <sighs> And I gave her some pointers and, you know, scribbled things on the pages and she went back and she wrote it again. This is a feature film. And I looked at it and I, you know, this is better. This is a little better. And I went through, I did, you know, the sample editing and scribble, scribble and all this kind of stuff. And then she takes it and she comes back and it's a little bit better. She has been through that process, with, well, in this case with me, uh, oh, it, it must be six times now. I mean, years have passed. I mean, that was she, this, she, she had a draft of this when she went up for her thesis three years ago, right? But I'll tell you, and I'm, I'm reading it once again. I'll probably be looking at it again this weekend. She is so close, so close. What I would really like to, I kept telling her, keep track of, don't lose your draft of your, of your first draft. Don't lose a copy of your first draft because a day is coming. I would like to have that in my hand and your final draft and put that together in a binder and use this in class. Have people read the first draft, and now read the last draft. And that, I believe, could be a wonderful, wonderful exploration of teaching and screenwriting because this has become viable. She is now close to having a sh an entirely shootable, 
casting really good social commentary screenplay. What changed in those six drafts over the three years or however many? Craft. Craft. Her mastery of, 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 I mean, what most of them do is they write what they mean. When they come to dialogue, people just blurt it out, and it's called on-the-nose dialogue. Uh, that's one of the things you teach. Stop it. <laughs> people do not talk like that. People talk around what they mean. Uh, not that there can't be confrontation and stuff like that under certain emotional circumstances, yes. But it was dialogue and less is more <clears throat> in terms of the amount of dialogue. In description, it was about the use of language and vocabulary in description using irrelevant words, the, and, there. There's a whole list of, there's the nine most utterly useless words. I, I got it back there on a sheet I pass out sometimes. Um, all that is is filler. All that does is slow the reader down. It is developing a style in the way you describe and, and offer exposition and description in, in scene with scene heading slug lines and then what we're looking at and stuff like that drawing people in where you put things, the plot, building the plot in an ever better way. You can do more here. You can do more here. That's what, what's been going on for all those years. So you liked her initial idea of the story. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it, so it, it, and it was you. in mm -hmm. very rough form, very rough form. She had written badly with pride. And in neath, underneath that, there had been. There's just something that really struck me. You know, this is this is worth saying, and this is important to say. It's a social commentary piece. It's not like there's a big market out there for social commentary pieces. There isn't. But uh, I say okay, but it has to be done incredibly well to catch the eyes you want to catch. Is it ever going to be made? I don't know if it's ever going to be made or not. That's out of our hands, right? But I am so proud of her. Boy, she has got a, a work sample for the ages. So. And you've let her know not, not too soon because once she takes yes. this brilliant idea yes. and it's not ready, that's it the can end just of it. Shoot her in the foot. That is, kind of that metaphor. is correct. Mm -hmm. Time and again. Oh, she was planning two years ago to send it off to one of the majors. I don't know. I don't know what's it's, it's a script of Palooza or what, one of the majors, you know. And she has to take one more look at it before she sent it off. <clears throat> I said, I think you're, it's self defeating to send this off yet. And she, there was a small contest. It, it's the BFA, Broadcast Education Association, has a, st a student thing every year. And they have uh, contests, uh, short film contests for students and scripts and so forth. I said, try it there, try it there. And she did. And uh, she learned some stuff. She learned some stuff. And she also learned that, that sometimes judges can be jerks. And that's part of the mix, too. Um, but she learned, she kept working, and it got better. That is how you write. Everybody who says, you know, you got to crank, once when I was coming up, I said, you got to crank out a brand new screenplay every six months. That's a, that is insane. I'm sorry. You can't do good work if you're doing that. 
No, you have to live with it. You have to grow with it. You have to be able to go back and read it again and again and yet again. It drives my wife nuts. When I was working on the book, you know, I was already was ready to send it to the, 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 the publisher. And she said, you're sitting down to read it again? What is wrong with you? I said, honey, you, you married a madman. I mean, that, that goes with the territory. That's what writers do. And I read it again, and I found mistakes, and I fixed them. It's endless. So the, the best thing for a writer is to have been born a bit obsessive-compulsive. It's like that is a trait that th the craft requires of us. You don't just dash it off. You don't. And do it well. What are the most common mistakes new screenwriters make? Okay, there's a list, but uh, uh, the, the, the most, let's say the three most common ones that I see are number one, not enough story. Again, it's that old thing, characters can be wonderful, dialogue can be sparkling and even funny as heck, but if the story lays there f f just flat as a pancake, that story is not going anywhere. It's, it's a weak story. Number two would be passive central character. That kid's killed more scripts than just about anything I've ever seen. And weak story and passive central character, they go together. They really go to get fit together too. A passive central character is a, is a hero or heroine, you know, the lead down the middle who doesn't really do anything. And life and the story happen to them they do not happen to anything or anyone. And that is, that is a one way to put your audience to sleep very, very quickly. Audience, uh, uh, heroes have to be active. They, I mean, the hero is the audience. You build, the, you build a story so that the hero is, with lots of flaws and everything, fine, yes, make them human. But they have certain qualities, character uh, of, of character and of circumstance. They have to be brave. That is absolutely essential. But you can put them in, you know, unfair injury. We, we, we care about people who are being unjustly dealt with. They're in a situation of danger. They're funny. They have a sense of humor. That always helps. Loved by other people. There is this kind of list of things you can do to keep characters interesting. That allows us to like them, and once we start seeing the nature of the, of the hero or heroine's major problem and the major ta impossible task before them, hopefully on about page six or eight, we the audience, the audience becomes one person, each of us sitting alone, and we project ourselves, psychologically project ourselves uh, into the hero, and then we're along for the ride. Um, and if that hero doesn't do anything or doesn't want anything and other people do all this stuff and all the people that come in, all the secondary characters are the witty, fun, urbane, you know, loquacious, and they're, they're the, and, and joking and funny, they're all the funny characters, while basically your central character is more or less wallpaper, it's, it's dead. And that is related to something, <laughs> something else which is the adversary. When that happens in a script, almost always 
The problem is there is no adversary or there is no powerful adversary. Adversary is so critical. People need to work on their adversary until it is. The adversary should be the strongest person in the story. I'm, I, you know, when I was, was coming up, you'd say, oh, they have to be equal. They have to be equal in power to the hero. No, they have to be much more powerful than the hero. It has to look, for most of the movie, it has to look like the hero has no bloody way of defeating this adversary or surmounting this, the, the problems being presented by this adversary. But they do it. They, they outthink them and they outtry them and drive and, and they can make it happen. And that's a story with great conflict, with a hero who is doing things, who sucks us in emotionally, that we can ride along happily for the journey. And that's how the, that's how the good ones work. Uh, which that's probably more than more than two. I threw in made that three or four. But the uh, the next the third I think I would say is getting it out there too soon. Mm. Okay. That's what destroys most screenplays. It's hard, you know, writing this a screenplay, a feature length screenplay. Heavens, that's hard, really hard. And it, it it's not necessarily all pleasant uh, undertaking labor, it, it, it hurts, you tear your hair out, you pound your head against the wall, sometimes literally, and, uh, uh, but finally you got a draft. Oh God, I did it, here it is, here it is, Let, I'm gonna get it out quickly as I can. And that's the time of great danger. You know, you can't just send it out, it is not ready. Guaranteed, it is not ready. Is there really this database of cover, I mean, of, of, of scripts. So, so I mean, really, it sounds like you know the sort of the medical record database. They have one on scripts too. Yes. Like, oh yes, I see Eric Edson. Yes, on this date, he sent us this. No, no, the coverage was horrible or something. I mean, yes. really, this exists. Well, I mean, I I have to confess now. It's been some years since I was in the thick of it of this, yeah. but I don't think a whole lot has really changed in 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 except they got more technological, they've gotten more, sure. better ways to keep track of stuff. Uh, uh, yeah, back then, <clears throat> you had one, sh basically one shot, because one, the person you're sending it to, if you finally uh, get an agent to say, okay, you know, I'll take a look, leave me alone, or, or, or if it's a producer or a friend of a friend or whatever like that, uh, most often, they're not going to read it, they're going to hand it to their reader. And I, I remember those early on when I was getting phone calls back from producers and they were obviously reading from notes. They had obviously not read the script themselves. They were working from readers' notes. Okay, but they have their time issues too and they've got to use their time as best they can. But uh, yeah, if you get a bad report first time in, it is filed. Now it's digitalized and you never know Ultimately, you know, what company becomes joined with what company and sometimes the people, they just know each other even if they're at different companies. Sure. And they hey, I did this pass through and they you know, sent me over the report and yes, those, those reports get, get disseminated. What if you change the name of the script? Let's suppose you started one called Angel's Flight and then you said, you know what, and this got a pass and a pass and so you decided to change it to Birds of a Feather and I'm just totally making this stuff yeah. up. But, and, and, and so Birds of a Feather has been looked at and you've worked on it much more and you've had more time. But the story's very similar. 
I would I would say my instinct is that you have probably done severe, probably irreparable damage to your career. To resend something? Yes. Okay. Under wow. a different title. Wow. Okay. Because they have the plot. You know, that's one of the things the reader does. They outline the entire plot before they say, eh, you know, whether good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, uh, no, I, I don't, don't do it. Don't just go around changing titles because, uh, I don't know, they don't like it. They, they don't, don't like trust it. it. Then they don't trust you. Yes. Ah, exactly. so that's the bottom line. Okay. Yes. Okay. If you really worked on something, let first of all, let time pass. You're not going to go back at them. Oh, I rewrote it. Re <laughs> I've rewritten it, and, and it's really, really good now, and it's five months later, and no, forget it. Put it away. <laughs> and then when the time comes, you know, if there may be... And what they're looking for in any given year, the wheel keeps turning, and you know the the, the nature of the material that they're looking for. Um, and then do it honestly. Say, look, you know, I tried this out on you uh, uh, two, three years ago. I have been work. I mean, I still believe in the idea, and I've been working on it. I think it's a great deal better. Or you go to somebody who hasn't read it before, because there's always somebody who hasn't read it before. And uh, say, you know, a friend of yours, <clears throat> Nancy or something like that, she read it and she read, she quite liked it. Or find another way, a back door, like maybe the friend, Nancy. Uh, 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 but I wouldn't change the title. So be upfront, play by their be rules. Be upfront. Because it could hurt you. Just, yeah, mm -hmm. you, need, you need to be upfront about it. Yeah. Why do you think people are scared to be upfront? Because sometimes liars get away with it. <laughs> we <laughs> have examples. We have examples. We do. We don't have to go into them, but yeah, we, we have plenty. Uh, yeah. Sometimes liars get away with it, yeah. but people, especially people in this business, I'm not saying they're all greatly talented, uh, but a lot of them are. A lot of them are enormously. They just have different talents than, than writers, you know, another, a different kind of creativity. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and they mean well. You know, they're 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 not inherently you know dishonest or scuzzy people, or, or anything like that. But uh, they make mistakes, and you you need to learn from their mistakes. And they also, amazingly, they have long memories too. Long, long time ago, in a land far away, and I was a struggling screenwriter, and I was cranking out original material. That was my thing. I figured the only way I could make myself, I mean, I wasn't, you know, a pusher and a pounder and a yeller, and the only way I was going to make myself a, a, a inevitable was to keep writing and keep writing and make myself inevitable through a pile of good to great scripts. And that's pretty much the path, the path I took. And I had a great idea about a, a war that takes took place at the very beginning of the Civil War. It was a, I don't know, Alan Pinkerton story. And I pitched it all over town. I had a good agent at the time, pitched it all over. And I said, yeah, yeah, good story, good story. We don't want it. We don't make, at the moment, the word was, we don't make historical pictures. At that time, they were very expensive. Hey, costumes, hey, sets, locations, means, you know, moolah. So I said, fine, and then my agent advised me to move. Okay, fine, well, now we know, move on. And I said, you know, uh, I want to uh, give me a couple of months because I'm going to write this anyway. 
I really like this story. I think this is a really good story, and I want to write it. He said, you're nuts, but okay. So I wrote it, and I really liked it, and we tried it again in script form and, you know, got the same response. Nobody wanted to do it, and I said, okay, but I know in my heart it's a good script. So I put it away. It was, I forget exactly, but eight or nine years later, a producer, a very charming, sweet producer by the name, uh, Wendy Deitman was her name, uh, she calls me up. She says, you know, Eric, you know that, that Civil War thing you had? D do you still have that? Is, is that available? Is it available? <laughs> she said, Would you, could you send that over? At that time, she was working at TNT. I was producing with, with another, uh, you know, strong, <laughs> very strong producer at TNT. And at TNT, it was uh, TNT that brought back the epic, the, the historical epic. That's part of what they were interested. I guess he was interested in, you know, that kind of material or something. Mm -hmm. So I sent it over. And within, I don't know, eight or, eight or 10 weeks, we had a deal. And within 18 or 20 weeks, they were in pre-production. And that's one of the ones of my originals that got made. So how did they have a copy of the script again? I'm sorry, you'd sent it out, but she, she wasn't there. She didn't have a copy. Yeah. She only remembered it. She remembered it. She had read the whole script back in the day. And she was somewhere else? Yeah, she was somewhere else ah, and, and, okay. and, doing, mm. and doing something else. But I guess the point here for screenwriters everywhere is all of your original material has a shelf life. It's not that you give it a shot, everybody says no, and you contemplate suicide, and you put it in the closet and carry on, right? It's, that's not it. Um, the cycles of what they are willing to purchase or option or consider actually making. But the cycles keep changing. At one point, nobody would touch a historical epic with a 10-foot pole. And uh, some years later, there was somebody looking for one. And my, my career during those years, uh, 23 years, whatever it was, my career as a screenwriter went around three times. You know, hot to cold, to hot to cold, to, you know, three times, three full times. And every single time when things were cooling down, things sometimes that had nothing to do with me, you know, a project goes bad and you happen to be associated with it or it had something to do with it and then it splashes over on you, people cool for a while. Every single time the way I got back in the game was with a new original screenplay. That's uh, your line of defense. You can't be lazy. You cannot be lazy. You must continually be working on original material. You don't need luck to be a successful screenwriter? Aren't there people that luck into it or it just seems that way? I'm one of those people who believes in you create your own luck. Is luck a factor? It, any, you know, in anything, the stars sometimes have to come into alignment before something becomes possible. But the thing about luck is you have to be ready for it when it arrives. And that is where craft comes in. Yes, I remember, I, mean, I, just, I got just plain lucky. 
several times along the way. Um, but then I had a, a closet full of work that I could, that I could use and prove and, and verify that I was really good at this and that I was the one worth taking a shot with. It's not just luck. You can't blame it on luck if you're not making headway. It takes a lot of time and you have to be improving your craft forever. The thing about screenwriting is truly, and the, and the best ones will say this, I've heard it from the best ones, uh, you never master this craft, never. It's too intricate, but if you master your tools, you can, you can continue to have pleasure in it, live in it, live the lives. I've lived hundreds of lives, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very rewarding thing to do even when it's rough, you know, even when, even when you're not selling. But it's, uh, it's well worth doing. And when luck comes, and if you're around long enough, if you're at it long enough, opportunity will come, but you must be ready to make the maximum of that opportunity. No, no deer in the headlight time, you know. When the headlight hits, you are ready to tap dance and you've got your scripts, you have studied pitching, you know how to pitch. Um, that, that is, we haven't you know, really gone into that, but that is really key to this business and there's no way around it. Yeah, yeah. I, I recommend my dear friend Michael Haig's book. Uh, what is it, Selling Your Story in 60 Seconds, I think is, is, is approximately his title. You gotta know this stuff. And I don't care if you're shy. Uh, you know, you can still learn to pitch a 60, 120 second story, tell your story. And uh, there's, a, uh, there's this thing, a story, an old story that goes around um, that when, when we're practicing, working on pitching in courses and stuff and people sometimes are having fun, so other people are upset by it. And, and I say, just, just be as nervous as you want to be. It's not about, pitching is not about not being nervous. It's really not. I said, once upon a time, there was this creative executive that worked for a very, very powerful uh, producer. And he comes bursting into the producer's office one day and he says, uh, uh, Alice, uh, I just heard the most dynamic story I have heard in five years. It's perfect. There's a star, there's a role for a star. It, 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 it's funny, it's touching, it's just the best story I've heard for ages. But I had to, t I had to pass because the, uh, the writer was nervous. They don't give a damn if you are halting <laughs> or if you are nervous. They don't give a damn if you have trouble pitching and that you know, you're doing something that everything in you wants to resist. Tell them your story, whoever you are. There is room in this business for everybody. Tell them your story. Be nervous as you want to be. They are in the story business. If your story is ready, if you've chipped away and shaped it into a, in, into a pitchable form, really a powerful story, and if your timing, your luck and timing, if your timing is right, don't worry about it. It'll all take care of itself. What advice do you have for a screenwriter when they sit down to start writing a screenplay? What are some things they should have already done before they 
type that first page, whether it's outlining. They should have beside them a list of the 100 most recent screenplays that they have read. The published ones, the successful ones. Okay, I'll give you a break. Make it 50. You are not ready to write until you are very well-read and well-versed in the literature you are proposing to create. And in this, in this place, it's screenwriting. Um, I would say systematize your organization. The first thing you have to do, see, a really bad habit that most screenwriters have is they got a great idea and they're cooking and they just start writing screenplay. I'm writing screenplay pages. Oh boy. And it's fun, but uh, it's going nowhere ultimately without a plan and a very well thought out. The hard work is in the outline and it has to be a very complete outline and you have to have confidence that all story problems have been addressed. So the first thing you have to do is the dirty work, the outline, write yourself. I would say hero goal sequences because I happen to think it and I happen to know that it works. But however, you know, beat sheet, however they do it, have a very complete outline. Um, and then good bloody luck. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and then I would also say, yeah, you write it on a little piece of paper and tape it above your desk. Write badly with pride. <laughs> no, <laughs> no writer's block. None. Just write badly with pride. Write a piece of piece of junk. You know, if you haven't, if you're just sitting there staring at the wall for an hour, okay. What would you write if you were just really writing trash, really writing garbage? Go for it. Because you never know uh, when the real ideas, the depth of what you are doing, will be sparked. You just don't know. You don't know. And there's so many things you have the tone. You. Know, I'm working, uh, I'm beginning to have some fun uh, uh, at this stage of things. I have, uh, you know, some, some original screenplays, of course, as it turns out, that never sold. And frequently what happens <laughs> is the stuff you like the most, that's the stuff that doesn't sell. And there are three or four of them that I'm, I want to turn into, into novels before my clock and race have been run. Uh, and I started on one uh, some months back, and I've been working a month and a half now on the first five pages. Every day I do, it's, it's uh, I kind of fell into it, but it's what uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway did. Every day he started at page one, and that's what I have to do, you know, by instruction, being instructed by him, but also by uh, uh, nature. I, every day I start at page one. You can do that for the first 40 or 50 pages. You reach a point, you know, it doesn't work anymore. But what you do by that, what you gain by that, is do not be in a hurry to zoom onward. You f because those first five to 10 pages are the most important pages in the, whole th in the whole thing, in a novel, in a screenplay. You either convince your audience it's worth to come along or reader, it's it's worth their time to come along for this journey with you or not. They you either they trust you by then or they don't. So, in the search for tone, rhythm, the use of language, and character, 
it's amazing spending five pages with, with your central character in this case, what you can learn about that character and doing the same five pages over and over and over and over and over. You'll learn a heck of a lot about your hero. This is invaluable as you move forward. So I would say also don't rush. Eric, what was the best screenplay that you've ever read and was that script ever turned into a movie? Mm. That's a tricky one. The best screenplay I've ever read. That I have personally read, I would have to go back to Aaron Brockovich. I would say, I mean, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of others out there that I have not read. But of the ones that I have premeditatedly sat down with and read more than once and made notes about and so forth, I would have to say it was Aaron Brockovich. And that's why I use it the way I do in class. Wow. Susanna Grant uh, taught me a great deal about screenwriting in that one script. But what was the other part of the question? Oh, well, was the script turned into a film? Which oh, most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely, definitely done so. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's something else here, if I might. Uh, I, I encourage people and point them in the direction of studying good movies, the screenplays of good movies, but just as valuable, every bit as valuable, and in some cases more valuable, is studying the screenplays if you can get your hands on them, but certainly studying the movies that bomb, movies that are really bad because they can teach you just as much as the good stuff. They can teach you what not to do, what doesn't work. And the idea to really get good at the craft is to get build for yourself an analytical eye. And if you want to get good at analysis, look at some bad, the movies you hate, I mean, everybody comes in and says, ah, what's, what's your worst favorite, you know, what's the worst movie you ever saw? Ah, I go, I don't know. I said, okay, get that movie, and I want you to see it three times. And they freak out. I'm going to go spend time with that piece of, you know, this kind of stuff. And I say, guys, think this thing through. If you really hate it, you have to know why. Just telling me you hate it accomplishes nothing. You have learned nothing. What you have to learn is why do you hate it? What ways, in what ways has it let you down as a creative undertaking? Nobody sets out to write a bad and make a bad movie. Nobody. They may set out to be, ah, well, you know, we'll dash this piece off and it'll be, you know, we'll get some money out of the market, you know, but they don't intend that it be a bad movie. Movies go bad for a whole, a whole swath and stack of reasons. And we need to know why. We need to know why. I was, I'm not, I'm not going to mention some titles. I was thinking about some titles. I don't want to go there. Uh, uh, but I've learned an awful lot from screenplays and movies that are not good. Why are they not good? Learn that and then you're growing as a screenwriter. How do we know our own writing level? The level that we're at? We all think we're good at something or excellent at something. We see the world through a certain lens. It fits together with our experiences. So we think we're making sense. We think it's brilliant in terms of our life experience. But how do we really know? Or maybe we won't. I don't think you should know. You're oh, one of good. the few in the class who are really good. 
because that's kind of putting a cap on yourself. You know? Oh. I, I would say, and we do talk about this, I mean, I, I point out to them in terms of as we're workshopping everybody's work, and yes, everybody's at different levels, that I say, we all come to this room from different places. We all have been writing for different periods of time. Um, some are closer to the beginning than others. Some have already done some stuff, sold some stuff. So it's going to be, we have, we're making allowances for that, that uh, nobody will be on the same level. And I would say that, I would just say don't worry about your level. It's not relevant to the process of learning to master a craft and, you know, and a difficult craft at that. That uh, just do the work in front of you, be you, and write what you have to write. Because the thing ultimately with writing and, and the, you know, the beauty of it is, even when a story is derivative, Perhaps you got an idea for a plot, but you say, ah, no, 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 I, you know, I've seen that the score of times before through the decades kind of stuff. And I would say, yes, but no one can write it exactly the way you would write it. It's not about level. It's about individual point of view and insight uh, into the human condition. And uh, that is, to, I would say, in all time, on all things, and for all times, it, it is to be encouraged. That's what we do. We seek ourselves in what we write, even <laughs> even when we're writing for money, for pay. And you can overdo that, uh, but I think you need to be doing it. Some of that in absolutely everything you write, because. There was some, some book came out in the 1930s, I forget who wrote it, who said there are basically 30, 36 plots in all of literature. That's it. Well, that's what the thing is with genre, you know, a genre. Going to write a Western? Well, that's been done a few hundred, a few thousand times, hasn't it? Well, you will do it your way. You will do it the way in which it has not been done before. Or if that's not how it turns out, keep working on it if you wish, or put it in the drawer and you will have learned some lessons about writing and yourself along the way. But uh, I, 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 the level thing, you know, it's just that we, we're running different races, not so much levels. You know, it's like some people started sooner than other people, so of course they're going to be ahead. Uh, but I would admonish writers, neophytes, and, and experienced ones, don't worry about that. You can make yourself nuts worrying about the level because you will always be writing what you want to write, unless you get hired to do it for a job. But you will be writing what you want to write the way you want to write it. Now just work to make it the best you can make it be. That's all. And one day you may surprise yourself. Just when you think maybe you aren't so good. And this happens. Oh, we all go in cycles. Yeah, this, this should be mentioned too. I mean, you know, up one day and down the next day suicidal. I mean, I mean, this is art. This is writers. You know, welcome to the club on that big wheel. 
the emotional journey of, of what it is, what we do. But you are also learning whether this art form is for you or not along the way. Are you in for the long haul? That's the only question you need to keep asking yourself. Am I getting enough food out of this, enough uh, creative food and juice and sense of, you know, that growing sense of command, incremental command of a, 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 a much to be respected craft that can be quite intricate? that I'm hooked, that this is what I need. I mean, it has been said that, you know, for writers, it hurts more uh, not to do it than to do it. Um, are you up for a lifetime of all the range of emotions you are going to be going through as a writer, as an artist? Is this what you want to do, really? You want to be an artist? That's great, but understand that it is not the simple and easy choice to make in life, quite the contrary. But it is a fabulous, fabulous journey unlike, unlike any other, I think. <laughs>